a path forward to peace? World leaders met over the weekend in Malta to look for solutions to end Russia's war on Ukraine. Now, obviously, Russia wasn't at this meeting, so there was no expectation of a peace broke through there. But this is part of Ukraine's diplomatic offensive to isolate Russia. Plus, what Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. says will happen without continued aid from the United States. I can tell you that Ukrainians will keep fighting. And whether it will mean that we will all die fighting or we will fight successfully, we frankly don't know. But what we know is that we don't have another home. And later in the program, Ukrainian students at a university in the U.S. are raising money for their country's armed forces. Today is Monday, October 30th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London in Washington. A third round of Ukrainian-backed peace talks opened in Malta on Saturday with representatives from more than 60 countries, but without Moscow, which condemned it as a blatantly anti-Russian event. I got details from correspondent Dorian Jones in Istanbul. Well, I mean, to be fair to say, there wasn't any major breakthrough, but it has to be said the organizers weren't expecting this. They very much stress that this is part of an ongoing process. The previous ones were in Jeddah and Copenhagen. And the organizers, particularly Ukraine, were very happy the fact that we've seen more attending. 20 more countries were represented either by online or physical representation. And they say that this is all part of a process where they aim to achieve some sort of global summit of leaders which will come together and back Ukraine's 10-point peace plan, which effectively means the withdrawal of all Russian forces and the prosecution of Russia for war crimes. Now, obviously, Russia wasn't at this meeting, so there was no expectation of a peace broke through there. But this is part of Ukraine's diplomatic offensive to isolate Russia. And they are particularly targeting what they call the southern world. And that is particularly countries in Africa and South America. Now, many of these countries have been neutral on the sidelines of this conflict. And uh, Ukraine and and uh, Western allies are seeking to bring them, as it were, into the fold against Russia. Meanwhile, Russia is still very much courting these countries as well. So this is part of this ongoing diplomatic offensive of isolating Russia and putting more you know, economic and diplomatic pressure on Moscow to uh, effectively capitulate. And Russia itself is trying to influence a lot of these other countries and gain its own sort of alliance with, as we've heard recently, many countries and leaders, particularly Iran, North Korea, parts of Africa. How does that factor in? Absolutely. I mean, this really is, it's not only a war actually on the ground in Ukraine, but there's also a very intense diplomatic war as both sides are trying to basically secure allies and maintain those allies. And you're right, Putin has been very much courting particularly Africa. He had a, a summit uh, early this year in Moscow, he brought African leaders uh, to Russia. And they, this is seen as very important in circumventing sanctions, but also in keeping uh, Russia from being fully diplomatically isolated in the world. And that's, I think, also a important part of Moscow's game plan of this war of attrition against Ukraine. And also there's similar efforts are going on in, in targeting countries, particularly like Brazil, major powerhouses, and keeping them at least not from joining the Western alliance and remaining neutral. So yes, you're right. This is ongoing war throughout the world among international diplomacy between uh, Moscow and Kiev. Russia just recently said it's ready for talks on post 
conflict settlement. But, you know, as we know, territorial integrity is something that's going to be probably a really difficult challenge since Russia thinks it has a right to maintain occupation in parts of Ukraine and Ukraine wants its country back in entirely, as you said. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, to be honest, that there's a lot of skepticism when Russia even talks about any kinds of peace or negotiations, be it uh, post-war or not. And I think that there is seen as part of this Moscow diplomatic offensive. It wants to appear that it's not intransigent. Yes, it's ready to discuss uh, the outcome and post-war discussions. And particularly Moscow stresses that it's not going to consider withdrawing from Ukraine. And for you, for Ukraine, that's the bottom line. It wants Russia out of its territory, not only the territory it seized in its first, in this latest conflict, but also the Crimea as well. So there is absolutely no middle ground between these two sides as yet. And I think for the moment, both sides believe that they can uh, determine the outcome on the ground in military warfare. And until one, both sides realize that they can't achieve those those goals, there won't be any negotiations uh, in the near future. That is the grim reality of the moment. Do these leaders plan on meeting again, even though it just doesn't seem like there's any solid way forward? It is seen as an ongoing process where I think Ukraine and its backers will just try to pick off more and more countries that are in Russia's orbit and drag them towards theirs using this meeting as a, as a vehicle for that process. And the ultimate goal will be at some point this year or early next year that they plan a, a global leader summit where they really, I think, plan to ramp up the, the pressure on Russia. But, but to be honest, I think that it does appear that for now at least uh, what happens in Ukraine on the battlefield is still the most important part of this conflict. Dorian Jones reporting for VOA from Istanbul. Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova, was the featured speaker on Friday at the Military and Editors Association Conference in Washington. The event was moderated by VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb, who joined me to discuss the highlights of what was a very fruitful conversation. She had a lot of really important things to say. You did ask specifically how concerned she was about continued support for Ukraine, given the current attitudes of some members in Congress right now. That's right. Um, So we here in the United States, we just have a new Speaker of the House and Speaker Johnson, uh, who was elected last week, while he has said that he is looking forward to finding ways to get aid for both Israeli partners and Ukrainian partners. While he says that, and while he has also said that Putin should not be allowed to win and that the U.S. needs to stop Putin from winning, he has also repeatedly voted against Ukrainian aid. He has raised concerns about auditing and finding where this aid is going. And so I asked her if she was concerned about the situation in Washington, D.C. right now and the growing war in the Middle East. And she said that, you know, she pointed to his comments about Putin and says, you know, that that's a good sign. Ukrainians need a partner that also understands that Putin cannot be allowed to come in and take territory from a sovereign nation. And she went into the audit portion of that because she is formally in finance before she became the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States. And she says that there is public transparency and there are audits going on with Ukrainians in every single portion of the aid that they have been given. And she listed the different types of aid that had been given. And she said, as long as it hadn't been classified as secret, we have been able to publicly display all of our aid given. And she goes, and that's why it's so important that the Ukrainians keep getting aid because you can see through our audits that we, we the Ukrainians, need more weapons, she says. And she goes, the biggest concern that she sees at the moment is delays. Because if the aid is delayed, then that gives Russians time 
time to fortify their defenses on the battlefield. And that puts Ukrainians at an even bigger disadvantage. She says they have to fight everywhere. Right now, there are more than 400,000 Russian fighters on Ukrainian territory. And she said that one of the biggest back and forths that that is, is talked about with analysts and experts in war is that Ukraine is not focused on one or two areas. They're trying to defend everywhere. She says that has to happen because they've seen what Russia is capable of doing in places like Bucha, where the massacre happened of civilians. And she says that the Ukrainians feel that it is their duty to protect citizens everywhere and no place needs to be safe for Russians to kill and rape and send people off to Russian territory and kidnap them. She says that can't happen. And so they're doing what they say is the best that they can do to keep fighting against Russian aggression. And let's listen to a bit of what she said about uh, her concerns about losing support. We are concerned that delays in this might just cause, you know, the the more deaths and and uh, more horrible situations on the ground. Because we also have to be very clear: the choice we're making now is not between Ukraine getting more support and winning, and not getting more support and staying where we are. No, because Russia didn't choose, didn't change the intent. So if we will not get the support, it's just a matter of time when Russia will start winning. Do you feel like you have enough aid coming in now to win the war? Well. Not to win the war. To win the war, we need another additional support from both the U.S. and European Union and other countries. Right now, we have used all the budget support that we have received from the U.S., so we don't have any incoming budget support available. Uh, On the energy and humanitarian side, we still have some money available from the previous budget. And on the military support, the only amount available is the presidential drawdown. So we cannot order anything. The USAI... Uh, is used, I think all of it except for like 300 million, if I'm not mistaken, or even less. And uh, there is nothing else left. So it's only the presidential drawdown authority, which the package was announced yesterday, 150 million, but it's a very small package. We need to order more from American companies, especially in air defense, especially in raiders, especially in the artillery, which, as you know, is a very scarce resource, the interceptors for the air defense. So for all of that, we need new supplementary money. And you also talked to her a bit about whether or not there's also added concern now because of what's happening in the Middle East and if supporting Israel will take away some of the focus on Ukraine. That's right. So there is a concern here in the United States. about supporting two different wars and two allies. President Biden has said repeatedly that the U.S. can walk and chew gum at the same time is how they refer to that, meaning that they are perfectly capable of supplying Ukraine and Israel with uh, with weapons and support. She said that when I asked her, is she worried that the focus will be taken away from Ukraine with this war in the Middle East now? She said, you know, we have to keep our focus on both. She said that these Hamas, Iran, Russia, they are the same axis of evil, she said. And she pointed to how Russia is using Iranian Shahid drones in Ukraine right now, thousands of them. And she pointed to how Hamas is using uh, weapons and rockets that were given to Hamas by Iran, bought with Iranian money. 
Uh, when, unfortunately, we see the frequent uh, visits of Hamas and Iran to Moscow and how they are coordinating and discussing their actions, and I think all of us, without even being present at those meetings, can guess that they're not discussing how to return peace to the world on those meetings. And so she says that the focus has to remain everywhere in Ukraine and the Middle East in order for the West and democracy and institutions that stand up against the murdering of innocent civilians can win. And Carla, one of the reporters attending asked her directly what will happen if Ukraine no longer receives support from the United States. That's right. And she said that you know the U- Ukrainians don't have a choice. This is an existential fight for them. She says that Russia has made it clear that Russia wants to destroy Ukraine. And if Ukrainians refuse to bow down to Russians, then they will kill them all. So they feel that it is a it is a threat that they have to meet no matter what. So she says that it's crucial that the United States and Western allies fund them, but they really do not have a choice in this matter. Well, it's going to be extremely, extremely difficult for us. Uh, It's very difficult to guess what will happen, but I can tell you that Ukrainians will keep fighting. And whether it will mean that we will all die fighting or we will fight successfully, we frankly don't know. But what we know is that we don't have another home and we don't have another land. And we will fight for this one as long as we will be able to do so. And frankly, that's what Ukrainians did even after the World War II ended, fighting, you know, the Ukrainian um, freedom fighters were fighting against the Soviets all the way until 1954. Now, the implications of that is going to be much wider than just for Ukraine. If Russia can win after they have violated the uh, UN Charter after they have violated all the rules which both of our countries believe should be in place. Uh, If the authoritarian nuclear state led by a war criminal, indicted war criminal by the international court, can actually win over Ukraine and move forward, then I think the question is not only what Ukrainians would do, but what will all of us do? Uh, So, You know, uh, we just have to be very clear that, yes, it's going to be very difficult. We are, in military sense, 100% dependent on our partners now. She stressed multiple times, as I mentioned, that they need more weapons. Look at what's happening here in the United States at the the moment. Ukrainian pilots last week just started training on F-16s. Those are fighter jets in Arizona. That is the last major piece of weaponry that Ukrainians have asked for and have yet to receive. They have received long-range attackums. Those are the the, the missiles that are fired out of of ground defenses of HIMARS further into Russian control territory. They have those now. They have M1A1 Abrams tanks. They have not yet used them on the battlefield. At least they have not publicly disclosed that they have used them on the battlefield. But those arrived last month to be at the use and at the ready for Ukrainian forces when they can find the appropriate place to put them in the battlefield. And now they are looking, starting next spring, to getting F-16s. So they're slowly getting all the weaponry they need, 
but just having this weaponry is not enough. You're going to need more of it to replace the stuff that Russia takes out. And most importantly, you're going to need the munitions that go with them. So for every attackum that's launched, it needs to be replaced. And that takes time, that takes money, and that is why she says it is critical for the United States and its allies to stay with Ukraine. And she pointed out to a lot of people in the United States who are concerned that funding the wars in Ukraine or the war in Israel is depleting U.S. stocks. She tried to look at it in another way. She goes, for every every piece of equipment that is sent to Ukraine, money is flowing into U.S. commercial companies that are making new equipment. And the Pentagon is able to dip into that money and get brand new equipment for its fighters. So she's trying to say that this is not just a benefit for Ukraine. It's a benefit for for commercial companies in the United States. It's a benefit for the Pentagon. And overall, it's a benefit for democracy if Russia can be defeated. VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb, thank you so much for being with us. Russia and Ukraine pressed on with their military operations on Sunday, striking each other's military targets, including drones, command posts, and electronic warfare systems. That, according to their latest updates, we hear more now from Associated Press correspondent Mimi Montgomery. Russia's defense ministry says its air defenses shot down 36 Ukrainian drones over the Black Sea and the Crimean Peninsula. Authorities in a southern region bordering the Black Sea confirms an oil refinery caught fire there, and local media reports it may have been the result of a Ukrainian strike or a downed drone. In Ukraine, the country's air force confirms the shooting down of five Iranian-made drones launched by Russia. Drone strikes and shelling on the Russian border regions and the Crimean Peninsula happen regularly. I'm Mimi Montgomery. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. Hundreds of anti-Israel protesters on Sunday stormed Russia's Dagestan airport, where a plane from Israel had just arrived, forcing Russian security forces to close the airport and divert flights while removing the demonstrators. We hear more from Associated Press correspondent Charles de Ledesma. Video shows a large, angry crowd of people moving through the main airport in the Dagestan region, then rushing onto the landing field, chanting anti-Semitic slogans and seeking passengers arriving on a flight from the Israeli city of Tel Aviv. Further video on social media shows some in the crowd waving Palestinian flags and others trying to overturn a police car. Dagestan's Ministry of Health says more than 20 people were injured with two in critical condition, the injured including police officers and civilians. I'm Charles Duladesma. Zaporizhdal, a Soviet-era steel plant in the southern Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia, has kept running throughout the war in defiance of staff shortages, blocked exports, power blackouts and the threat of Russian missile attacks. Sean Hogan with Reuters has the story. A steel plant hums on against the backdrop of war. But Ukraine's steel industry, the future of 30% of the country's exports and 10% of its GDP, is in doubt. This plant in Zaporizhia, run by Roman Slobodianuk, isn't giving up. This is one of 
It is the economic sector that suffered the most from the war. Almost 50% of the entire sector is not functioning today. In Soviet times, Ukraine produced more than 55 million tons of steel annually. That fell to 23 million by 2021. And after Russia invaded last year, output was just 6.9 million in 2022, as plants were taken over or destroyed. Although domestic demand has doubled as Ukraine churns out weapons and builds bomb shelters, as well as rebuilding towns. But despite what is produced, moving it is the problem. Russia continues to pose a threat to shipments in the vital corridor through the Black Sea. 70 to 80 percent of the sector, mainly the metal industry, agriculture, the consumer goods industry, used to export their goods via seaports. There were many of them in the Black Sea. But after occupation, we had to adapt and use rail transport. But rail is four times more expensive. Russia has damaged 40% of Ukraine's power network, leading to production losses from shutdowns. The labour market is also squeezed. Zaporizhia is only 31 miles from the front line and Europe's largest nuclear plant, which is now under Russia's control. The plant has lost 20% of its 10,000 strong workforce since Russia invaded. Many workers have left and serve at the front line. Both senior and younger workers have left. Some of them serve at the Zaporizhia front, others serve at the Donetsk front. Sean Hogan reporting for Reuters. Ukrainian students at Yale University are raising money for the armed forces of Ukraine and helping to educate fellow students about the situation in their homeland. Irina Solomko has the story narrated by Anna Rice. Ukraine's former finance minister Natalia Yereska is talking about her country's economic recovery from the war. She's speaking at Yale University's Jackson School of Global Affairs at an event organized by a student organization called Ukraine House. Today I'm talking to students who are just forming their worldview and I tell them how we see the world, why Ukrainians fight, why they need to keep fighting. Yariska's daughter Darina Finglus is a Yale student and a co-director of events at Ukraine House. She says her home is Kiev, but she was attending Yale University when Russia invaded Ukraine. I couldn't be idle and not do anything. I knew I could do something useful because I love Ukraine and I want to go back and live there again. Another Ukraine House member, Yevhenia Podurets, says that most Ukrainian students at Yale belong to the student organization. Everyone contributes in their own way, does something useful for the organization. Someone is helping spread information, others bring materials for fundraising. One of the main goals of Ukraine House is to raise funds for Ukraine. The organization's vice president, Yuri Statsuk, says that is becoming more difficult. It was easy at the start of Russia's invasion. Back then, everyone seemed to be doing something for Ukraine. But now we need to make a lot more effort to reach the same results. To raise funds, members organize various events and parties. During Halloween, they will talk about the Slavic traditions linked to the holidays. 
as well as selmotankas, traditional Ukrainian dolls, and bracelets from the Azov-style steel plant. By buying this, Americans can help Ukraine and get a souvenir that will serve as a reminder of what Ukrainians went through and keep going through. The group plans to organize a large conference to mark the second anniversary of Russia's invasion and discuss rebuilding Ukraine, says Darya Valska. I'd like to bring to Yale Ukrainian students from a number of U.S. universities, so we can unite for this event. Ukraine House members also want to shift how the academic world looks at Eastern European studies and make sure it's not necessarily through the prism of learning about Russia. For Irina Salomka in New Haven, Connecticut, NRI's VOA News. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, we thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. This is the voice of America. Washington, Papa, Bozette, D.C.